0: invite you to open your Bible with me tonight to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and we'll be reading verses 23 through 26, 1 Corinthians chapter 11 verses 23 through 26, where Paul reminds us of what he received from the Lord and and the institution of the Lord's Supper as we come to the table tonight. Let's read then 1 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning at verse 23. Paul writes, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's ask the Lord to bless. Father, once again, we ask that your spirit would give us ears to hear. Uh, Thank you, Lord, for the, the wonder of the Lord's Supper, the the miracle of grace contained in it, and Lord, just give us the ability to understand these things of God by your Holy Spirit tonight. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The title of my message tonight is, uh, What Do We Do When We Eat the Lord's Supper? Uh, What are we actually uh, doing when we eat the bread and we drink the cup? If you've ever seen an Indian rain dance, uh, or any sort of um, religious uh, ceremony of a, of a different religion, uh, you, you'll see people right chanting and dancing and maybe shaking things. And uh, the question might come to your mind: well, what, what are they doing? What's the meaning of it? What's what's the significance of it? And if if someone came in and watched as we um, celebrate the Lord's Supper, they would they would uh, probably have the very same questions: What are they What are they actually doing? Because it's a very small little piece of bread and and uh, it is a very tiny little drink of wine or grape juice. Uh, it doesn't seem very significant at all. So so what are we doing? Uh, and, but I think there's a lot of confusion in the church as well. Uh, what does it mean? What are we doing? What's the significance uh, of the Lord's Supper? Uh, what, is it, what does it mean to uh, remember the, the death of Christ? I read this past week um, I was reading a book by Todd Billings called uh, Remembrance, Communion, and Hope. And in the intro, uh, Gerald uh, Sitzer uh, wrote this. He's speaking about the confusion in the modern church when it comes to the Lord's Supper. He says, The Lord's Supper has suffered a significant erosion in the American church. Our functional theology of the sacrament is thin, superficial, sometimes overly rationalistic, sometimes overly emotive, sometimes overly individualistic, but rarely whole and healthy. I have visited churches in which the pastor invited people to the table without as much as mentioning the words of institution, and the congregants served themselves the sacrament as if the communion elements were appetizers. I have observed people uh, glancing impatiently at their watches when it became apparent to them that the Lord's Supper was going to lengthen the time of worship. I've listened to doctrinal interpretations of the Lord's Supper that gave me the impression that the meaning of the sacrament is in the thinking, not in the receiving, as if knowing the properties of a medicine can serve as a substitute for actually taking it. I think there's a lot of confusion in the church, as uh, Stisser points out. So uh, I think uh, we probably have heard the words before that the Lord's Supper is a means of grace. Well, what is that? How does that work? What, is it, what does it mean? So how is the Lord's Supper supposed to be an actual help to us in our Christian life? Uh, there have been different answers uh, given to that in the history of the church, and Todd Billings, in his book, uh, Remembrance, Communion, and Hope, points out that the way that the Lord's Supper functions in the typical American evangelical, and I would say even Reformed church, is very different than how it functioned. Uh, in the life of the early church. Uh, he points out that the, the, the predominant assumption today is that the Lord's Supper is a remembrance. Uh, if you know any of your theology, you know that Zwingli, one of the early reformers, uh, emphasized this aspect of the Lord's Supper, and we seem to have become, by and large, functioning Zwingli, Zwinglingians. I, I don't know exactly how you would say that, but uh, we, we sort of follow that track. It's a, re, it's a remembrance, In the sense that uh, people sense that, or they would assume that the Lord's Supper provides an opportunity for personal, private reflection on the death of Christ. And the usefulness then of the Lord's Supper is its ability to move us, uh, to to, uh, evoke an emotional response in us, to help us feel the love of Jesus in a, a transformative, hopefully transformative way. Uh, which is why people are often sort of disillusioned or left a little dissatisfied um, when participating in the Lord's Supper. Have, have you ever left the Lord's table feeling uh, somewhat dissatisfied because it didn't really move you? Uh, you believed everything that was said, you you sang the songs, you ate the bread, you drank the cup, but it, it it just didn't do much for you. Uh, you didn't really feel any differently afterward than you felt before. And, and so you left maybe uncertain how the Lord's Supper was supposed to be, any practical, functional uh, help to you in the hard week that you have ahead. Well, you see, we, 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 we think that way and feel that way because we tend to believe that the value of the supper is its ability to move us. And if it doesn't accomplish that, then we feel as though something has failed. I think it's a, it's also a reason why um, our functional theology of the Lord's Supper has shrunk down to uh, the that it's really not that significant. It's nice. It has um, we're sure it has some value, though we're vague on it. But people do not feel uh, compelled to come and attend. So if we say um, we're going to have the Lord's Supper tonight, uh, attendance does not ratchet up in, a, in any notable way, uh, p- people do not, um, are not concerned that uh, they're, they're missing out on the Lord's table. And I would just suggest to you that that's not the sense you get when you read the New Testament, that it seems like the Lord's Supper was an essential part of their life together, that it, it functioned in an integral way. It was something that they eagerly devoted themselves to and so you read that in Acts two forty two, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. They devoted themselves to it not, not, not as a duty. The apostles weren't you know beating them over uh, you know come on people come on Lord's supper. Uh, it was it was just it was seen as a necessary part of doing life uh, the Christian life. And so throughout. The New Testament and the epistles, you find the church gathering to break bread. Uh, the Lord's Supper meant something very specific to them and very important to them. They found it to be life-giving. So, so what did they know that maybe we've forgotten? Well, tonight um, we're going to just try to unpack some of Paul's words here in 1 Corinthians chapter eleven, and we're going to see that Jesus first. Uh, tells us what the elements are and then calls us to action so what we're doing in the Lord's Supper is we're remembering and we're proclaiming um, there's a uh, there's a ton of theology we're not going to be able to get into tonight uh, it, this is I would just ask you to try to hang in and pay attention uh, listen because some of the distinctions are maybe fine but but I think there's a truth here that was will be profoundly helpful to us as as we um, think about coming to the table in, in maybe a new way. So first, just what the elements are. Paul says, um, I, I want you to know that I'm passing on what I received uh, from the Lord. Paul's not making it up. This is Jesus gave Paul instructions as to how to celebrate the Lord's table. And notice the first thing that Jesus did is um, Jesus told his disciples and tells us what the elements are. So Jesus takes the bread, and he said, let me tell you what this is. This is my body, which is broken for you. That's, that's what this bread is. And then he took the cup, and he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Now, uh, Jesus is, you see, in doing that, clearly telling us that this meal is a, it's a different kind of meal. It's a ceremonial meal, a memorial meal. Uh, the, the, the elements, the items have symbolic significance. They represent something. Uh, boys and girls, let me ask you, if you had some, if you had some gold, which would be nice, and then some, uh, maybe some sort of metal, uh, and when does that gold and metal become something other than gold and metal? And an and answer could be when it becomes a ring. Uh, specifically when it becomes a wedding ring. Okay, it's become something more than just uh, the gold and the metal. It, it now stands for something. A, a wedding ring, you see, points to something outside of itself. Most rings, um, they're, they're, it's just a ring, piece of jewelry, adorns. But that's, but that's really all it does, and it's calling attention to itself. A wedding ring is not calling attention to itself it's calling attention to something outside of itself. It's pointing to an objective reality of a covenant that has been established between a a man and a woman called the covenant of marriage. And in the same way, then, the the elements are doing the same. So, when Jesus says, this is my body, he's He's telling us the bread is pointing to an objective something outside of itself. The wine is pointing to an objective reality of a covenant, and, and a covenant that God has made with sinners, a covenant of salvation. Uh, the bread is pointing to the body, the broken body of Jesus Christ by which that covenant is enacted. And so, the, the elements, Jesus tells us, are, are pointing to the objective reality of Christ's sacrificed body by which God Himself has entered into a covenant relationship with with sinful men, who believe. Now, the important thing to understand in that is is that the Lord, the power of the Lord's Supper, then does not reside in its ability uh, to move you, but the power of the Lord's Supper um, resides in what it actually communicates. So, so it, it, it's it's. E- its effectiveness, its value, its power is not in its ability to make you remember mentally, recollect what Jesus did, or, or to create an inner experience of a feeling of devotion or love, but, but the power resides in the elements and in what the elements mean, and Jesus tells us what they mean. See? This is. This is my body. This is the, the new covenant in my blood. And, and of course, if we, if we break those elements down, they're, they're not metaphysically uh, body and blood, right? If you, if, you, if you take a microscope and put the bread under there, you're going to find wheat cells, not human cells. But, but, that, but that misses the point. Um, if you, when a man takes a piece of metal and gold and says, uh, with this ring I thee wed, and places it on the, the, the hand of his beloved that ring now stands for all the covenant promises of love and fealty contained in the marriage covenant. And and so when the bride and the groom receive those rings, you see, they're not just receiving rings, they're receiving a marriage. They're receiving the the real thing that the ring points to. They're receiving a a life-changing covenant, a, a whole new identity that's what they're receiving. And, it, and it's not an identity that's been formed by their feelings about it, but, but by the objective reality of the, of the spoken-os and marriage laws that the ring signifies. Uh, imagine a, a bride. I've done many weddings. and I've never had this happen. I hope it never does. But imagine a bride, you know, somewhere in the middle of the ceremony, maybe right in the middle of the vows somewhere, it just says, just, could we stop a minute? This, this isn't... It's just not—it's not doing anything for me. I don't know if it's the flowers or we got the wrong colors, but I expected to feel, you know, a lot differently. And um, maybe, maybe could we start over? And because it, it's not working. Well, you know, you just realize this—this this poor girl has doesn't understand what she's about. You see, as a minister, you'd want to say, oh, "I'm sorry, Buttercup," but. Um, this is a this is a marriage is happening, right? Whether you feel or however you feel about about it, right? There's an actual covenant being formed here, and you're going to be married when, when, at the end of this when you say I do and he says I do. You'll be married with all the obligations and all the benefits that come along with that. There's an objective reality that, that we're engaged in. Well, that's the same at the table, you see. So the. the I think it's very helpful to, to remember that the benefit of the of the sacrament then is not in its ability to make you remember something that happened a long time ago. It's, it's not in its ability to move you emotionally. But it is, um, the benefit is whether or not you actually understand what the sacrament means, what the elements mean, and receive the reality that those elements signify. So, so, when Jesus says, you see, do this in remembrance of me, that's what he's talking about. Remembrance, in, in the Bible, that word has a stronger meaning than, than what we, how we usually use it. So, we, uh, if we use the word remember, we're talking about a mental activity or lack thereof, right? I, I mean, I'm just, I can't remember things anymore. Can't remember people's names. Um, it's an act of the mind, a mental exercise. Well, in the Bible, um, it talks about it differently. And, and see, that use, the way we use the word adds to the confusion. So when people hear Jesus say, do this in remembrance of me, uh, their understanding is that the, these are visual aids to help us remember in our mind something that happened a long time ago. It's a visual aid. But that's not what Jesus is talking about. We know that He's not asking us to think about something. He's asking us to do something, commanding us to do something. We know that because of how the word is used in other places in the Bible. So, uh, Matheson writes this, "...to remember God's mighty acts," which we're commanded to do, "...or to remember the poor," you read about in the Bible, "...is not simply to call them to mind, but to assign them an active role within one's world." So, to remember God is to engage in worship and trust and obedience, right? It's, you're actually doing those things. To remember the poor is to relieve their needs. So, so remembering is it's an act of the, of the will and the heart, not merely an act of the mind, not merely a recollection. So, so what is Jesus asking us to do when we come to the Lord's table? Well, uh, he, he's asking us um, to, to remember him in the, in the rich biblical sense of that word. And to get an understanding of the rich biblical sense of that word, we've got to think about the Passover because that's what Jesus is referencing. The Passover is that Old Testament memorial meal that is the Old Testament foreshadow of the New Testament table uh, of the Lord. Um, In the Old Testament, we read in Exodus 12, 14, that God commands Israel to celebrate the Passover each year, quote, as a day of remembrance for you. Uh, Boys and girls, maybe you remember uh, what the Passover meal was about. You remember God was bringing Israel out of Egypt, and the... um, The last night before they were going to go, the angel of death was going to pass over all the land and all the firstborn were going to be uh, struck dead. But God told the Israelites that they were to sacrifice a lamb and take the blood and put it on the mantle of the door. And everywhere where there was blood on the doorpost, on the mantle, the angel of death would pass over. There would not be judgment. And through that act of judgment on Egypt, Israel is set free. Set free by the blood of the sacrifice. And so that's the celebration of Passover. It's, it's, it's uh, celebrating God's mighty act of delivering Israel out of Egypt through a sacrificial lamb. But it's a meal of remembrance. So to eat the Passover is not simply a mental recollection of the past event, but a present receiving of the salvation of that event. So it's to receive Israel's God as your God. It's to receive the salvation that God had given to Israel as your salvation. And and not just as a private act of devotion, but a communal act. A public participation in the realities of God's deliverance through the blood of the Lamb. And and so the point of the Passover was not to call you into the subjective world of your spiritual feelings, but to invite you out into the grand objective drama of God's saving work. You're entering into, stepping into the reality of God's saving power and saving promises for Israel. calls you out of yourself, not into yourself. So Billings writes this. With the sacrifice of the Passover lamb at the temple and the celebratory meal of lamb, unleavened bread and bitter herbs, the Israelites did not move into private introspection like many contemporary Christians. Instead, they inserted themselves into the public history of Jehovah's saving action on behalf of His people. In the Lord's Supper, the public event of God's mighty acts in Jesus Christ is appropriated as one's own biography, one's own corporate history. You see, when the Israelites celebrated the Passover meal, there's a place in the Bible, and it says, in a sense, you became Israel as they ate the meal. <clears throat> and that wasn't just for the original uh, people who came out of Egypt, but all the Israelites after them. That as they, as they stepped into that historical drama, received God's saving act for themselves, they become, in that sense, true Israel. And that's what we do as well. Uh, the Lord's Supper, you see, is not just about introspect, personal introspection or something that happened a long time ago, but we are appropriating God's saving acts as, it's for us. This is our biography. This is our corporate history. We become the church, the people of God in it. So it's an, it's an identity-defining meal. It defines who we are. It is a participation in that sense, in, in an objective sense, an objective participation in the objective death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, which Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of <laughs> Christ? of Christ. It is an actual stepping out into, in a sense, the the body and the blood and receiving the salvation and the covenant that is signified by the elements. So B.B. Warfield, a renowned theologian of the past, I think is helpful here. Listen to what he says. Warfield writes, assuredly, the sacrificial feast is not a repetition of the sacrifice which the Roman Catholic Church holds. It's not a repetition of it, and equally certain, it is something more than a mere commemoration of the sacrifice. It is specifically a part of the sacrifice, and more particularly, it is this part, the application of it. So those who ate of the sacrificed victim became thereby participants in the benefits obtained by the sacrifice, which is exactly right. So the benefit of of sacrificing that lamb and putting the blood on the doorpost, the benefit was you you don't lose your firstborn and you're rescued out of the bondage of Egypt. That's the benefit. And the only way to achieve the benefit is by applying the blood. So B.B. Warfield continues, only one or two of the households actually bore the Paschal Lamb, one or two of the household. So you'd assign somebody from the household, take the lamb. It's got to be slain by the tabernacle or at the temple later on. So so a few would go, uh, and they were engaged in the actual act of the sacrifice. But all those who partook of the feast were alike beneficiaries of the sacrifice. Everybody who ate received the benefit. This is the fundamental law of the sacrificial feast, perfectly understood by the Lord's first disciples who had been bred under a sacrificial dispensation and instinctively felt its implications. So they understood. Uh, Jesus isn't saying, you know, I want you to do this lest you forget down the road, you have a mental block and you just forget that I died for you. It's not what Jesus is saying. He's saying, do this And it's an ongoing doing of this, until I come again, as your means of participating in the death, participating uh, in the covenant so that we receive the benefits of the death and the covenant. So that's what we're doing when we come to the Lord's table. You see, the benefit of the meal isn't, isn't found in how it makes you feel subjectively, it's found in the in the objective reality that it portrays and that is conveyed to you as you eat and drink in faith, the, re, the objective reality of God's salvation. You see, if you think about a normal meal, the benefit of a good meal, I hope you had a good meal this afternoon... The benefit isn't primarily how it makes you feel or even how it tastes. The primary benefit of a good meal is the nourishment it provides. And that, if, and, it, and that if you don't get nourishment from it, well, then you're going to grow weak and die. That's how necessary food is. Well, it's the same with this meal. You see, the primary benefit isn't how it tastes, isn't how it makes us feel, but the actual nourishment it provides being the actual benefits that are conveyed. So what are the benefits? Well, as I said, the benefit is salvation. The benefit is is salvation. This is my body, which is for you. This is my covenant in blood, a covenant of salvation, a covenant never ever to be broken. And so when Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me, what we are doing is not recollecting but receiving, participating, taking the objective reality of God's salvation to ourselves, entering into the drama of God's redemption, uh, receiving all that God has accomplished in Jesus and all that He's promised in Jesus. We take it to ourselves. It becomes our biography, our story, our identity. We have entered into God's salvation. That's what we're doing. And then we proclaim it. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He come. The Lord's Supper is an act of proclamation, a public communal testifying, a proclaiming. What are we proclaiming? We're we're proclaiming the death of Jesus Christ as the sacrificial lamb that accomplishes the redemption of God's people. We're proclaiming all that Christ has accomplished. We are proclaiming the forgiveness of our sins, all of our sins, in the death of Jesus Christ. We're proclaiming that in His victory over death, we have found victory, that by His death, uh, by His righteousness, we have been justified. By His Spirit, we are being sanctified. By His power, we will be glorified. And claiming the confidence, proclaiming in confidence that We are going to see Jesus. He is coming again. So Jesus says, do this, right, as long as, uh, as often as you proclaim this death, you proclaim it until he comes again, until he comes again. I'm coming again, Jesus says. Friends, what what Jesus has given us in the Lord's table is a, it's a token from heaven. Uh, Billings uses the word icon. Icon. If you're Reformed, icons aren't things that you think highly of, but but an icon, uh, it can be a biblical sense of that. An icon is a sense of touching point between heaven and earth, something that maybe represents and uh, and, and, and in some sense we we taste and touch and handle eternal things through the icon. Well, the Reformers destroyed all the icons of images and idols in the churches because we have an icon. God has given us uh, uh, something from heaven, that, that communicates the realities of the kingdom of heaven. That's what the Lord's table is. We, we live in the midst of a world that is passing away, and here in the table we, we have something that's from the world to come, and we're laying hold of that world. We're proclaiming our confidence in that world. We're remembering, you see, the Lord's death and proclaiming that death till He come again. A, this is a public communal act, of receiving the reality of God's redemption in Jesus the reality of that covenant of grace and so friends as you come to the table tonight don't come thinking about how does this make me feel come thinking about what is this because Jesus says this is this is my body and this is the cup of the new covenant and so eat and drink in remembrance, eat and drink participating, embracing, receiving the truth, the realities signified in the elements. May God grant it. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, I thank you that you've given us something as wonderful as the table of the Lord. I thank you, Lord Jesus, that this is not just something to jar our memory. But we have here bread from heaven. We have here, Lord Jesus, in symbolic sacramental form, your body and the cup of the new covenant. And Father, I pray that tonight then you give us the faith to receive the objective truths of these things That we know, because of what Jesus has told us, that as we eat and drink in faith, we are participating in this salvation, and our sins are forgiven, all washed away, and we've been made new creations, and we belong to the kingdom of heaven, and God is our Father, and Jesus is our elder brother. And our hope is set on what is yet to come. And Jesus, I I pray that the truth of these things, the the, the objective truth of them, would be evident to to us tonight as we participate, as we eat and drink and remember, as we proclaim the Lord's death until he come again. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.